uh, today, um, we're going to look at John 1, and we're going to talk about Jesus a little bit. In the middle of, the John, of John 1, we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at some prophecies that took place about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And these were written about 700 years before Jesus came into the world. And so one of the beautiful things about that is that prophecies are actually not unique to the Christian faith. There are lots of people who claim to be prophets throughout history. In fact, uh, God does battle with some of the ones who are false prophets in the Old Testament. But there was, you know, there are some, you know, people who claim to be prophets throughout history. And not too long ago, people came enamored with the guy Nostradamus. And uh, Nostradamus was a guy who claimed that he had some prophecies. And his prophecies were extremely vague. You know, it was like something in the West is going to happen that's going to be cataclysmic and difficult and challenging. But then after it's been difficult and challenging, some good things are going to happen and everything's going to be all right. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, of course, that's what's going to happen. But the prophecies we see in the Bible uh, are actually much more specific, even down to the point where and how Jesus will be crucified on a cross. And for example, like one of them says that when Jesus is uh, pierced with a spear in his side, uh, they will take his garments off of his body and they will cast lots among themselves to see who's going to get which and keep whatever he owns. Um, the, 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 the prophecies in the Bible are much more specific than just general prophecies. We're going to look at a couple of those things and see what the prophet Isaiah had to say about the coming of the Messiah and how it relates to you in our day to day. So let's start in John chapter one. We're going to read verses 43 through 50, go back through them. And in the middle of them, we're going to jump to Isaiah 53. Here we go. John 1, 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the, I'm sorry, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe me because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than this. All right. Let's go back to verse 43 here and, uh, and examine some of this. All right, verse 43 says this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So here he is. He is going down to Galilee. And this is a, this is a, a coastal place, a coastal region. And he's beginning right now at this point in the text to <coughs> choose some of his disciples, the people who would actually change the world. And I think if you and I were trying to create a story uh, of God coming in the flesh or God coming down from heaven and choosing people, he would not choose the people that these people are. In fact, he says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now, he finds Philip and he finds a couple of other people, but the follow me is the summary of the conversation they have. We don't know the conversation. He didn't just walk up and go, follow me. And they're like, cool, you know, and just leave everything they have. But what's interesting about Jesus is that he is very unconventional in many, many different ways. One of the ways he's unconventional is there's something compelling about who he is, that people just are willing to leave everything that they have and all that they are to follow him and to do as he asks. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, were from the town of Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida actually means like fishing village or city of fishing. And so this whole idea essentially is, he chose these guys who are very like blue collar, uh, just like hardworking kind of guys. Years ago, I went up with a bunch of therapists to uh, the North of Scotland and we spent some time up there. 
and we were helping uh, addicts that were suffering um, um, heroin. And so uh, we got to know a lot of these, the, the town that we were in, it was called Fraserboro, and it's in the north of Scotland on the North Sea. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But uh, the fishermen, and if you've ever met a fisherman, I'm not talking about like somebody who goes to New Smyrna Beach on the weekend. I'm talking about like somebody who's really a fisherman. Uh, we would sit in the pubs with these guys and we'd have these amazing conversations. They would tell us these incredible stories. They would go out on the uh, North Sea for two months, three months, sometimes four months. And they would come back with their catch and they would get these big paychecks and then <clears throat> they would go and many of them would get on drugs. And it was just this bad cycle that they found themselves in. But these guys were salt of the earth guys. These were powerful men. They would, <laughs> I would talk to them and they would say, I would say, why do you only have, you know, three fingers on each one of your hands? And they'd seem like, that's fishing. They say that you're not really a fisherman until you've had one of your fingers jerked off with a net as you uh, throw it overboard. It is just one of the most amazing things, but they didn't care. They're like, I still got three. You know, they're like, I can do everything I need to do with my three fingers. It was amazing. These were men in the same way. That's exactly what Jesus is picking right here. He's picking guys. These are, these are guys who know how to grind. These are guys who know how to endure. These are guys that as he pours the right stuff on the inside of them, they already have the character that he needs and the people who are gonna, as people who are gonna change the world. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. Now the first part says they immediately kind of followed Jesus, left their fishing businesses and started following Jesus. Verse 45, we find Nathanael. Nathanael's not so ready to follow right away. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and <coughs> about whom the prophets also wrote. Here, we're gonna go back in just a minute and we're gonna look at one of the prophets, Isaiah, what he wrote about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael said. Nathanael grew up in a town called Cana and Cana was real close to Nazareth. So he knew the reputation of Nazareth, which is the backwater, nothing town. This is like being born in Bithlow, right? Like, like we know it happens, but should it, right? Like, like that's just, like, that's kind of how it is, right? And so, so he's like, what good can, can anything good come from there? <clears throat> and Philip says, hey, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see this Jesus? And when he comes and sees Jesus, he has his life changed by him. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So what does he mean by that? He means basically Nathanael is the kind of guy that, you get what you get, right? He wears his emotions on his sleeve. What you see is what you get. He says what he means and he means what he says. And then, <clears throat> of course, Nathaniel's never actually met Jesus before. So he goes, how do you know me? Like, why would you say that about me? How do you, how do you know me? And then Jesus does something kind of to show not just that he's an ordinary guy, but that he's God. Jesus answered, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And so what's happening here is Jesus is basically saying, I know something about you, even though we've never met, even though I couldn't have seen you under the tree, even before, you know, uh, Philip called you, I saw you sitting under there. And it's this thing that Jesus does several times throughout the scriptures. It's called remote knowledge. And basically because Jesus is not just some ordinary teacher, but he's also God in the flesh, he has the, he has the knowledge of God. He knows all things. And so what happens every once in a while, as you see it, like for example, there's a story of a woman that he meets at this well. And Jesus breaks all social conventions with this woman. Um, in, in fact, in the first century, a man just couldn't approach a woman that he doesn't know, maybe a sister, but not, not, a, not, a, not a person that he doesn't know, and just have a conversation. Now add to that that Jesus is not only a regular guy, but he is also um, a rabbi, a teacher of the law, a teacher like um, 
uh, no other. So for teachers of the law, they couldn't even speak to a woman, and especially a Samaritan woman, because in the, in the scriptures, you've got Samaritans, you've got Jews, and they don't like each other because it's a racial thing. It's like what used to be black and white or Hispanic and, and Asian or whatever it is, right? And so what ends up happening is they, J- Jesus would never speak to this woman, but he walks right up and he has a conversation with her. And during the conversation, he mentions that he knows something about her, and that is that, he ha- that she's had five husbands. Now, it doesn't mean that she was actually married five times. It means that she's been with five different men. And so immediately she knows that he can only know that because he knows something about her. And so he, she turns to him and she goes, oh, I see that you're a prophet. In other words, you can see things that no one else can see, to which Jesus is like, yes. Another example of this is the disciples. They're wandering around and they wanna have this conversation away from Jesus because they know this is not the conversation Jesus wants to hear. But they're all having this conversation and Jesus is way away. And just imagine like a mile down the road and there comes, the conversation is, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Like which one of us as disciples are gonna be the boss and which one's gonna be the followers, right? So they have this conversation, they're jockeying for positions. Then they go to Jesus and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? And then he tells them what they're talking about. And they're like, oh, Jesus knows everything. We should keep our mouth shut, right? And like, it's just one of those moments like this where he says something to them, but he, he knows something about them that it's impossible to know. And so he's like, hey, I saw you sitting under the fig tree even before Nathaniel reached out to you. And we'll see how, um, how, or how Philip, even before Philip reached out to you, we'll see how Nathaniel responds in just a second. But let's go to Isaiah 53. But first we're gonna look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Here's what you need to know. All through, the Old, all through the Old Testament, there were people who were looking for the day that the Messiah would show up. Everybody had a different idea about who Jesus would be, just like they do today. There were some who believed Jesus would take the role of politician. He'd be born, he'd be raised up as a politician, maybe even become king and liberate them because they were slaves, if you will, under the Roman Empire. And they wanted to self-govern like any nation wants to self-govern. And so they were like, man, we, just want, we need somebody to rescue us out of this situation. And so when Jesus came and he wasn't a political leader, but he was a spiritual leader, people rejected him. Others expected him to be a military leader. He'd rise up and lead a rebellion against Rome and then he would take over and they would be on top. But all of those power controls and all those political things, Jesus said, this is not gonna be the path that I choose, but I'm gonna instead choose a totally different path. In fact, there's a moment where this is very, very evident it's right when Jesus is arrested. I love Peter so much. He's such a think first, uh, or he's supposed to act first and think later. He's a fire the gun in the name kind of guy. This is, this, is, this is Peter. So somebody comes and arrests him. Rome comes, guards come from Rome. And they arrest Jesus. They grab Jesus. And Peter doesn't think. He just pulls out his, he pulls out his uh, little hatchet here, right? Why? Because he's a fisherman. You steal my fish, I cut off your hand. Like there's a guy, right? So he pulls this thing out and he goes, whack. And he whaps the, he cuts the guy right here and cuts his entire ear off, like the side of his face. And so he's freaking out. Everyone's like this. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I didn't come to bring the sword. If I wanted the sword, I would ask my followers to pick it up. But I came to bring something totally different than what you think. And then in that process, while he's saying this, everyone's calming down, except for this one guy who's got his face cut off, right? Jesus picks up, picks up his ear and just pops it back on like he's a Mr. Potato, right? Like just, <laughs> boop pops it right back on, right? In that moment, I don't know, but like if I'm the Roman guard, I'm thinking to myself, I'm out. Like I, like, I, like, like, I don't know what he's about, but that guy just put my ear back on and I'm fine, you know? I think I'm just going home at that point in time, right? But, but there are these moments where people expected Jesus to be something that he really, really wasn't. So let's, what is he? Isaiah 53, two. <laughs> this is funny that he, he uses this. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. I think it's weird that the prophet Isaiah gets this from God. Hey, the Messiah, he's not gonna be attractive. Like he's, in fact, he's, he's not beautiful in any way. If you lined a hundred guys up, you wouldn't be able to pick him out. Now there are guys like that. David in the Bible, it says that he is ruddy and handsome. He's manly, right? Um, it says that Esther was beautiful. It says there's certain people that are beautiful. Jesus, not so much. Probably this tall, looks like a Middle Eastern guy, right? And, uh, and, and for the most part, there's no beauty in him or no majesty to attract us to him. When you meet Jesus, there's nothing on the outside if he was just standing there that you'd go, this is the guy we choose, right? Like if you and I were creating God to come down in the flesh and be someone like that, we'd make him look a little bit like a Harry Styles, you know, or someone, someone like that, where you're like, wow, he's attractive. Like, like, okay, I'll listen to that guy, but, but not Jesus. In fact, there's something about Jesus that is way more than just the obvious things of his appearance that we should desire him. There's something that flowed out of Jesus that actually attracted people to him, and they did. They were either repulsed by him because he offered a challenge to who they are. They have to change. Or they fell in love with him. There was nothing in his parents that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected, suffered, and pain. Look at these words, despised, rejected, suffering, and pain. Why? Well, we talked a little bit about this because in Hebrews, the scripture teaches us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So, so what did that mean? It means that when you go through hardship and you go through difficulties and temptations, when you suffer and you go through diff- challenges, maybe you have felt despised by people in your life before. I know that I have. I know that I've been rejected, I've suffered, and I've had a lot of pain in my life. So all four of these things at least represent me, and I think they represent many of you as well. I think the reason why Jesus was this person, why he went through these things, that he was a man familiar with suffering, was because God the Father wanted Jesus to be able to relate to us and wanted us to be able to relate to him. In other words, he's not like the Greek gods, Zeus sitting on Mount Olympus, throwing lightning bolts around the universe. That's not God. Jesus was like us. He suffered, he went through hard things. Why? So that he could understand what we were going through. He experienced the same things. He chose to take that upon himself. He is a high priest who can sympathize with us. Verse four says it like this. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Here's what happens. There are a lot of Christians in the world today, and whether you're in the room right now or you're online or wherever you're listening to this from, here's the thing. There are many Christians today who know, here's what I know about Jesus. He died for my sins and that's why I'm going to heaven. But what was the mechanism? What did he actually do for you and to you that allows you to go to heaven? It's on the cross. In theology, it's called double imputation. And the idea behind it essentially is this. He gives us something and we give him something. We give him all of our sinfulness and all of our, and, and, and all of our pain and all of our struggle and all of our brokenness. We, the father takes all of that and puts it on Jesus. Now, if you look at the cross in a superficial way, you can say the great suffering that Jesus went through was the physical suffering he went through. But guys, you need to know that there was a Roman guard that woke up that day that was born in Rome, most likely, that joined the guard because this was what he needed to do to provide for his family, that was told that day, somewhere around like 30 AD, hey, I want you to go up to Golgotha. You know the hill up there? And I want you to crucify these three people. 
And that was his day. And then the next day, what happened was the same thing happened. He woke up and someone said, I want you to go up here and crucify these five people. There was nothing unique about crucifixion. It was just something that happened to thieves, to murderers, and people who commit sedition, crimes against the state. And so Jesus was hanging on the cross with those guys. His suffering that he went through was the same kind of suffering that thousands of people went through. So it's not the pain of the cross like maybe some of the movies would portray. What really happens to Jesus on the cross is that all of the sin of mankind is placed on him. Not sin generically or generally, but our individual sins that we've committed. And you go, hold on it because you're smart. You go, that happened 2,000 years ago. How, you know, I live 2,000 years later. How did he take my sin if it happened before? It's cause and effect. That doesn't make any sense. The father sits outside of time and space. He's not like us. He's not. Time is a creation that God invented when he invented the universe. But you and I, we live, we live in time and space. We can't escape that. He, on the other hand, sent Jesus into the world from outside of that. He sees everything happening at the same time. This is why when you read the passages from the scriptures that say things like this, he knew you before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything, he knew who you were. He knew you'd marry. He knew the kind of life that you would have. He knew the boundaries, the Bible says, of where you would live, the age uh, that you will die, and the time in which you'll be born. All of these things are known to God. Why? Because he's seen your whole life already on play. So as he's seen your entire life and those who will come after us, all of their entire lives and all lives for all time, he takes all of that sin that we've committed and he pours it out on Jesus on the cross. And there is a moment when Jesus, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father, right, turned his face away from Jesus. He who knew no sin, Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through Christ. What does that mean practically? Here's what it means. It means now when the father looks at you, if, if, if you have received from him what God wants to give to you and believe in his son, Jesus, if you have that, here's what happens now. The father looks down from heaven and is not counting your sins against you anymore. So when he looks down, all he sees is the blood of Jesus over your life. In the Old Testament, you see a picture of this. It happens in Egypt. God sends the angel of death over all of Egypt, except for those who took a branch and blood from a lamb and put it over the doorpost. The firstborn of everyone in Egypt was, was killed that day, but not those who were covered by the blood. In the same way, the father now looks down from heaven at you, even when you are blowing it. And we're gonna see that in a second. And all he sees is that your life is covered by the blood stain of his son, Jesus. And that's why we get to be with God. That's why you can have assurance right now that even when you blow it and screw up, the father says, I'm with you. But it's not a general thing for everyone. It is for anyone who will choose to receive and believe, right? And that means that every single heartbeat, if you're not a Christian yet, every heartbeat you have, every synapse that fires in your brain, every opportunity that you have from this point to the time that you die is given to you for the distinct purpose of being able to respond to your creator. And to know that he took up your pain and bore your suffering instead of you. And the second thing that he does is he takes all of his righteousness and goodness and he puts it into your account. So when people say things, let's say it because they don't know, but, they, but when people say things like, you can't earn salvation, what they, what, that's wrong. Here's, here's why. You personally can't because we're sinful. So we've already blown that chance. But Jesus did. He had a sinless life. And all of that sinless life was then credited to our accounts in that moment. If he had sinned even once, he would be just like you and me. And we would still be lost in our sin. He took up all of our sin. Now watch this, yet we. So here's what he's done for us, yet we. This is what we do to him. 
We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Look at these words, punished, stricken, and afflicted. Here's why. There was, uh, back in the ancient world, like there is today, and I think you're going to get this because we think the same way, many of us. There is an idea in the ancient world that when you are favored by the gods, Greeks, when you're favored by the gods, or when you're favored by God in our case, then your life is going to be easy and blessed, hashtag blessed. But the hashtag blessed life doesn't look again like what we think it looks sometimes. I was talking to a woman one time and she was really struggling. She said, hey, listen, I, don't, I know that God, God wants me to be blessed. Do you, do you believe that, Pastor Mike? I'm like, 100%, I believe that, 100%. And she said, therefore, I shouldn't be going through suffering and hardship. I go, well, that's where we differ. Because I don't see suffering and hardship and difficulty, and God even brings it into your life. This is why we consider him punished by God, because here is Jesus hanging in front, hanging with two thieves on a cross, right? And so, so, so think about it like this. Rome put this um, amazing plaque above Jesus on the cross, and it said, King of the Jews. And the reason why they did that was they were mocking the Jews, because you know who's never crucified on a cross? If the gods favor them, someone who's favored by the gods. And so everybody looked at Jesus, even the disciples, even those who followed Jesus looked at him because there was only one at the, there was Mary and there was John, his best friend at the, at the foot of the cross. Everyone else is hiding. Everyone else is freaking out. Jesus walks with these guys down this road called the Emmaus road. And they, they said to themselves, they said to him, we had hoped that Jesus was gonna be the one, but they thought he wasn't because he was crucified like a criminal. And God would never do that to someone that he loves. God will absolutely allow and bring into your life at times hardship and difficulty. And you go, well, that doesn't seem nice. Yes, it is. Why? Because he's a good father. And if you're a good mother and you're a good father, you would do the exact same thing. When my kids were young, my boys, <coughs> both of them, they would love to like get near the stove all the time. And so they're like this tall and they're just reaching up, you know? And sometimes we've got like, you know, stuff that's boiling up there. One day, one of them was doing the same thing and, you know, they're just, you know, putting their hands up there. And I come over to one of them, I swat him on the bottom and I pick him up and I put him over here, this booger, this little booger. And I'm like, that's gonna hurt you, don't do it. Why? Because I'm a good father, right? I'm a good father who loves my kid and I'm not gonna sit back, watch him reach for something that can destroy him and say to myself, you know what? Everyone's got free will. You know what? You do you. You know what? We don't do that, why? Because we love our kids. And sometimes it requires a slap of hand pick him up and move him away. God sometimes does that for us. You know why? Because he loves you and he wants better for you. And guys, this is true. Because listen, sometimes the bigger the calling on your life, the more hardship and challenge you're gonna go through. Do you know why? Number one, opposition from Satan. Number two, because God's building things inside of you. See this, this, this Coke can right here, man, it is tough. Like if I were to squeeze this thing, right? Because, watch this, because on the inside, the pressure is equal to the pressure on the outside, I can't crush it. I can't make it happen, right? I can squeeze as hard as I can, hard as I want to. It's most likely not gonna burst, right? But if you don't have the right stuff on the inside of you, and this is what God does through suffering, ask yourself the question, have I grown most when things have been easy and everything's going my way or when things have been hard? We grow most when? That's right, when they're hard. Why? Because God's shaping us. When things are hard, we turn to him. James Denny, the writer, he said, the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. 
We need to desperately desire God sometimes, and God brings things into our life sometimes to say, to remind us, yes, I desperately need you. The facade and illusion of control that I have over my life is foolishness. I need you, God. And he's doing something. He's putting on the inside of you what is necessary, watch this, necessary, so that when the outside pressures of life become hard for you, you're not crushed. Because if you don't have the right stuff on the inside of you, it doesn't take much to crush you. It doesn't take much at all. So the reason why some of us struggle and suffer so much is because we've never developed on the inside of us the strength that God has called us because we've never learned the lessons of suffering. When something hard comes into your life, it's not God hurting you. It's not God angry at you. And for some of you, that's exactly how you felt. Maybe you even feel it right now. You're going through something bad in your life and you think, well, God must not love me. Why? Well, because we would consider ourselves punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted by him because man, my life couldn't be going worse right now. Maybe God is doing something in you right now so that you can be free in the future to be the person that God wants you to be. I believe that with all of my heart. And I know it's true for you as well. But Jesus was pierced, verse five, but Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. But he was pierced for our transgressions. After Jesus dies on the cross, a Roman guard is told by a superior, go and make sure he's dead. And they did this to pretty much, they had a tendency to do one of two things. They would either break the legs of the person so he couldn't push himself up. When you're on the cross, you die of suffocation, right? So they break the legs, suffocates, and they die. But this time, because there was a prophecy in the Old Testament, no bone would be broken, was that they said, take the spear and slam it into the side. Comes up underneath the ribs, pierces the pericardial sac. The Bible tells us that water and blood flowed. Why? Because the pericardial sac contains water and blood around the heart. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, this is so beautiful. I love it. It's so good. This shows how thorough God's forgiveness is for you and for me. This word transgression and iniquities, they're different, but they're very similar. Transgression means um, something that you've chosen to do that you know God does not want you to do, but you've chosen to do it anyway. But you've chosen to do it anyway. Now, this has a relationship to iniquities, but iniquities is much worse. This is what we're doing on the outside of us. This is what we become on the inside of us. So if in your life, you transgress and you do it over and over and over again, right? So you watch something that you shouldn't watch on the internet and you do it over and over and over and over again. At some point, you stop being a transgressor and you become somebody who's filled with iniquity. Instead of doing the thing, you become the thing. It changes who you are. It transforms who you are. We can think about it like in another way. For example, if you take a drink, you're allowed to take a drink, by the way. The Bible says that you can drink alcohol. It just says, don't be drunk. Why? Because no one's wise when they're drunk. No one's connected to God when they're drunk, right? And so he says, hey, you can do this thing. You can drink, but don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. But you wake up and you go, I'm going to transgress. I'm going to get drunk tonight. I'm going to get drunk the next night, the next night, the next night. One day you wake up and you're not drinking, you're a drunk. And that's the difference between these two words right here. This one is on the outside. This one's on the inside. And look at what he says about that. He says, but Jesus was pierced for our willful decisions against God and for the bad things that we become. The punishment that brought us peace with God was on him, was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are what? We're healed because when, even when we're drunks, even when we're fornicators, even when we're doing wicked things with our life, at the end of the day, if we have received and believed, and it's not God's path for you to do that. It's not what he wants for your life. But if you are just in a broken season right now, and many of you walked away from the church because you're doing wrong things. But in this situation, you need to realize 
The strategy for that is not to walk away from Jesus or the church. The strategy is to press back in because you know why? He's forgiven you. All he's asking you to do is receive that forgiveness from him and believe that Jesus can change your life. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, you and I have been healed. But why? Why did we need it? Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. This is it. This is the condition of of mankind. It starts in Genesis. We like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. When God created the world, he created Adam and Eve in that world and he created them perfect and beautiful and it was great. He created the the Garden of Eden for flourishing, for human flourishing. But But Satan comes in and he goes, listen, there's a tree. God said for you not to touch it. Let me tell you why. If you touch this tree, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be more like God. Here's the crazy thing. He wasn't lying. He was tricking them, but he wasn't lying. They would become a little bit more like God, but God could handle it in a way that they couldn't. So here's what, here's what happens. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately, they understand evil. All they, all they knew up to that point was good. They were pure, they were innocent, and now they understood evil. She hides from him, he hides from her. We've been hiding from each other ever since. And we hide and they hid themselves from God. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Like in that moment, when that happens, something stains humanity for the first time. When my boys were young, um, <coughs> they, would, uh, they would say, dad, we want access to the internet on our phones. We want smartphones. I gave them little flip phones when they were young. And so uh, they're like, we want smartphones. We want to be able to have access to the internet. All our friends, all our friends have access. Their parents are wiser than you. And they let them do that. And I'm like, just young guys, this is, a, this is, just put this in your pocket. I'm not like everyone else's parent. That's what you say, right? Like, I'm not like everyone else's parent. We don't do things the same way that everyone else is gonna do them. Like, so I love you and I'm in charge of you. This is what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna let you do that. Here's why I knew. Here's what I knew. I knew that eventually they're gonna see things on there that they can never unsee again. That some knowledge is not good knowledge. That some knowledge is destructive knowledge. And so it, broke, it breaks my heart to think of my little boy wanting to be part of that. It's the same heart that the father has every time we reach for something and go our own way. He's like, don't reach for it. It's not gonna give you hope or life. He, he, don't turn to your own way. My way is the only way that you're gonna find life and hope. This is the father's heart again. He didn't just place this tree there to hurt them. He's like, I'm gonna place this tree here because I want you to have the freedom to choose me or not to choose me. I want you not to be a robot. I don't wanna force you. But I want, you to make your, I want you to make your way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has taken upon himself all that is necessary to heal us. But we have gone astray. Verse seven says it like this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Hey man, this is fantastic. This is my favorite part right here. Okay, so zoom in. Are you ready? Not the camera, you. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, some really, really good advice in the Bible gets. You'd hardly ever hear preachers say it because I think they think that you're gonna be offended, but I'm gonna say it anyway because I don't care. And uh, here's what it is. Here's what it is. Mind your own business. That's what the apostle Paul said. He's like, when you're dealing with the world that's difficult to live in, when you're around a bunch of people who don't believe as you believe, mind your own business. This is exactly what Jesus was doing here. I told you that many people had all kinds of ideas about Jesus when he came into the world. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not what? He didn't open his mouth. Why? So he's standing before Pilate. He's standing before um, King Herod. And they're asking him, hey, are you the king of the Jews? 
And the reason why they want to know this, the answer to this question is because if Jesus says yes, now he's, he could stand for the, uh, the crime of sedition and they can kill him. But both of them, Herod says it, Pilate says it. Pilate walks out in front of all the Jews. He goes, look, I'm washing my hands of this. I don't see any reason to kill Jesus. I don't see any reason to put him in prison. I don't see any reason for any of this. Rome itself and their officials said, there's nothing wrong with Jesus. But then the people started shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, right? So he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like the sheep before its shears, he stayed silent and did not open his mouth. Why did he not open his mouth? Why didn't he just say, I'm the king? Well, because he wasn't playing the politics game. He didn't come to be a politician. He came to be Jesus who would die. He would actually be led like a lamb to slaughter. Listen, there are so many people today in the world, Christians today in the world, it's so discouraging to me, you guys. A lot of people talk about the church. I'm gonna talk about Christians, okay? So discouraging to me that, that there are so many of our brothers and sisters, and I hope this isn't you. I pray that it is, and I pray it all the time. There are so many people who run around thinking that they're oppressed and afflicted. Oppressed and afflicted? Like we as Christians today? Like maybe because like they'll take away our tax exemption one day? That's terrible. You know that most places don't even have that around the world? That's like not even a thing? Like most Christians are walking around just screaming like, I'm, I'm afflicted and I'm oppressed. Jesus was afflicted and oppressed when they hung him on a cross. Yet he did not open his mouth. He minded his own business. I think that in the last 50 years, we've taken a really, really bad strategy in the church. And here's, here's the bad strategy. And this is the reason why the world is so divided and why people are hating Christians more and more. It's because for some reason, we figured out a long time ago, 50 years ago, right? That if we start making laws, we can just make a bunch of people do what we want them to do. But the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, all of it was designed to show us the law cannot save you. It cannot rescue you. It's not your hope. Here, here's, here's the deeper point right now. I believe the reason why we have become so political, now you should vote. I'm all for that. I do, right? And I don't, I don't want to know your, your stuff. I don't wanna, you're not going to know my stuff. I'm not going to know your stuff. I don't want to know because we have Jesus in common. Amen? But what, watch this. This is super important. We shouldn't be out there screaming young people and asking people to act like Christians when they're not, okay? And here's why. Because we thought if we can just like, how do we make change in society? We put the right rules in place and everything's gonna be fine. No, it's not. Do you know why? Because that's not what Jesus came to bring. So if Jesus didn't come to bring that, there's no power in it to change a life. We have forgotten that the gospel has the power of life and death in it. And that Jesus can change a heart, transform a life, take someone like me who was godless, promiscuous, violent, and angry and turn him into somebody who loves Jesus with all of his heart and does this. If you would have told me this was gonna be me, I'd say you're insane. But Jesus is a change maker. And I think we, if we wanna see change, because I desperately wanna see Orlando changed. I desperately wanna see your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers follow Christ. All of my family that I grew up with, we were not Christians when we grew up. But because of God's grace, through the life that God's given me, I was able to bring all of them to Christ before they died. I still have one left, one left from my family that's alive. I'm still working on them, right? 
I want that for you because I want you to have a forever family and I want you to have people that you can like go into heaven with and say, this is what God has done through us and in us. The gospel changes lives. And we have to church get back to believing that the gospel is the power of God unto life. If we don't, we're gonna continue with broken strategies. By oppression, verse eight, by oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who stood up for Jesus? Nobody did. Even his disciples hid from him. (coughs) Verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What a weird thing for them to say. But this is what happened. Here's Here's how this worked out. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. So here's Jesus dying between two thieves, the wicked. But he was also given a grave with the rich. Why? There was a very wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea that came in and talked to Pontius Pilate. And he said, hey, Pilate, I want the body of Jesus. And Pontius Pilate, for some reason, said, fine, take it. And he buried him in a, in a, in a well-established kind of grave. And so all of this just leading to the, the picture of who Jesus would be for us. And then verse 10, how this whole thing ends. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Did you hear that? If it is the Lord's will to crush his very own son, then will God withhold suffering from us? No, but he will always be with us in it. He will always go through it with us. It was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and to cause him to suffer. Why? Because though the Lord makes his life an offering from sin, he will see his offspring, that's us, and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The reason why it was the father's great pleasure to destroy his son, to crush his son, was because he knew on the other side, he would raise him from the dead and you and I would now have access to heaven. Jesus did what a father would do. He gave up everything that he loved so that those he would love would have everything that they would need. Your father loves you so much that he was willing to do the hardest thing that he ever did. And that was to give himself, give his son, Jesus. And here's how Nathaniel responds to Jesus when he meets him. Remember, he was skeptical. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, hey, listen, Nathaniel, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the tree? You believe because I had this miracle knowledge of you? But then he says this, you will see greater things than that. And what he meant was, you'll have the life of me on the inside of you. Guys, when you walk with Jesus, receive and believe what he has for you. When you walk with Jesus, you will see greater and greater things. Just open your eyes to the power of the gospel and you'll see God do amazing things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a caring father. Lord, we recognize right now that there are so many in our world and in our culture who push back against who you are. There are many who say that your son Jesus is not who he says he is. There there are many who say that you don't even exist. And yet, God, you still love them and you care for them and you reach out to them and you give them every moment of their life to receive from you. We thank you, God, for that because the people that we're talking about, some of us were those people in the room. And we're thankful for the changed life. Give us once again the belief, the trust in you that you can take that person in our family, (coughs) the person who's far from you, and you can give them hope and a new life, God. I gave up on my father a long time ago and you told me to start praying for him. And it wasn't long after that that you brought him to your son. But right before he died, I know that you are able to do these things. And we ask that you would allow us to participate in that. Even this Christmas Eve service, 
let us, Father, see massive transformation in people's hearts and lives. It's in your name we pray this. Amen.